Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Face to Face. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. (music) 
So welcome to Face to Face. Uh, our uh, guest today is uh, a friend of mine, as you've probably noticed uh, in the past. Uh, I would imagine eventually in the future, uh, some of our guests won't be won't be friends of mine, or at least personal friends of mine. But uh, Eden Rahim is here from Horizons Exchange Mutual Funds. Traded funds. Traded funds. There you go. Uh, thanks for uh, joining us, Eden. David, thank you very much. I look forward to this. So, so uh, it's a conversation. It's uh, it's a bit of an interview. Uh, Eden has an incredibly uh, interesting and eclectic past. He's a a guy who loves uh, economics. He's working in the mutual fund market. I would imagine he might, uh, you know, add a footnote or two to that. I would I would think. Sure. And uh, but he also loves philosophy, and I think that's how Eden and I connected some time ago. Uh, we both have a love for for existentialism, for German, French, uh, Danish existentialism, but in particular, Kierkegaard uh, is a, a personal uh, a philosopher that we both personally connected with. So I want to talk a little bit about economics, we're going to talk about philosophy, we're going to talk about life and incremental change. So again, Eden, thanks for joining us. This is great. So you, okay, so what, one of the things I've always found fascinating about you is your, your education. You studied molecular genetics. How is that a part of the puzzle? Well, um, it started out back in 1980. I was in high school. I saw Genentech go public, and it was it looked like a dynamic new field. I was actually going to go into engineering, and I switched uh, specialties and did my undergrad in molecular genetics. And while at U of T, I did a minor in philosophy along the, <coughs> along the way. What, uh, so what, why, what was the draw towards genetics? Um, it was a novel field. It was a new frontier. Um, it was the next uh, emerging um, innovative thing to come on the scene. And I've always been attracted to that. Uh, there's something very, very um, appealing about, uh, about the next uh, innovative thing to come on the scene that's going to change the world. And uh, uh, as it's turned out, that's what happened. So, so uh, in the next innovative thing, I mean, you couldn't be in a more, in a more innovative field, really, in a sense, you know, mutual or mutual. Sorry, mutual funds, the the financial uh, world. I suppose. Yeah, it, I, I guess they they were in parallel because uh, uh, each generation there is some field that is that basically dominates uh, the society. In a prior generation, would have been manufacturing. Uh, in prior generations, would have been agriculture. It just so happens that in just this generation was finance, and the next generation will be something else. Um, so I was I'm one of the very very fortunate people in this world that I think has managed to do one or two things that he absolutely loves. Uh, to have a job that is innovating, that you want to wake up to every morning, and and I'm very fortunate with that. Uh, combining biotech and finance. So would you say that, I mean, to me, I know nothing, zero, about molecular genetics. Would you say that's about the the, the details in, in a way? I mean, most scientists, I suppose, are sort of fascinated and focused on details. There's, a, there's an element of curiosity there. Um, you know, for all their rampant rationalism and objectivity, I could argue that they're philosophers of a particular sort. Is there a connection there between the financial world and you know being a, a molecular geneticist? Um, not not a, not a direct uh, comparison, other than the fact that both fields were emerging um, 
for both there was a tremendous amount of creativity that was required um, as these fields emerged. So in the case of biotech, what it was doing is you were taking drug development down to a whole new level, down to the level of the DNA and the cell. Prior to that, in the pharmaceutical industry, um, most of the drugs were chemically based. So we were moving to an entirely new level where you could address uh, chronic and fatal diseases in a way that was inconceivable mm -hmm. prior to this technology. Similarly with finance, um, I was involved in derivatives and what is basically a form of financial engineering. So what you're able to do is take finance and take it to a whole new level where you can create securities and instruments that can mitigate risk or distribute risk or create different payoffs that are desirable by investors. So both were very creative, both were very uh, involved. And, uh, so it's almost like at a higher level or a lower foundational level, there's a direct connection. Uh, absolutely. But, but as you start to unpack it, maybe not so much. Absolutely. So are you one of the guys that I get to blame based on Inside Job, <laughs> uh, the, the documentary film? I'm assuming you've seen it. Uh, I have. And as you know, I was one of those critics of the entire financial system mm -hmm. and the incentives that were built into the system that created the crisis. Um, I was somewhat of a Cassandra in the years prior to that, from all our lengthy conversations, um, discussing that the crisis was inevitable. And it was inevitable based on the fact that there was a payoff incentive across all levels from government uh, through those on Wall Street, where no one had a direct stake in protecting the system. And once you have that sort of order of magnitude, um, a system will collapse like this. It wasn't it wasn't two or three years in the making. It was 20 years in the making. Right, right. And it's the nature of risk where, where people will at first be very prudent in taking risks. But then as time goes by and policies come into place that protects investors from the consequences of certain risk, then they're willing to take more risk because someone else is there to absorb the risk that they other would, otherwise would have right. borne. Which is so funny. It almost sounds like an analytical, philosophical thought experiment. Absolutely. You know, as long as somebody else takes the risk, I'm willing to take some risk. Well, then it's not really risk anymore, is it? Yeah, well, that, that's exactly right. And if you don't perceive it as risk, then your behavior becomes reckless. Right. So now we're talking about things like intuition and psychology and, and, and relationship and so on. It's, it's no longer this supposedly quantifiable thing, but it's very much based on human behavior and, or, or, or in this case, misbehavior. Well, you know, and that's a great way of putting it because when a market is orderly and behaves well, there are a series of checks and balances in place. It self-corrects. Hmm. So it'll go up by three steps, correct by two steps, up by three, down by two. But then as policies come into place to protect you from the two steps back or from any crises that arise, then your behavior changes. Then you're willing to take on more risk. You're willing to uh, commit more to the trend. You're willing to borrow money to participate in the trend. And that's exactly what happened. So it really began over 20 years ago when the market crashed in 1987. Mm -hmm. And the Federal Reserve stepped in and said, we will provide all credit necessary to all borrowers and all market makers. That in itself, you know, the, the road to hell is always paved with good intentions. Mm -hmm. And it was well-intentioned. We understood why it was there. But then they kept the policy in place. And that collectively changed behavior. And then we saw this again 
in the crisis of 1998 <coughs> with the failure of long-term capital. Again, the Federal Reserve and the government intervened. And that became a pattern of behavior. So at that point, investors started to understand, I can take on as much risk, but someone will cover me and pay the consequences of that. And that is what led to the real estate bubble, to the NASDAQ bubble, and the subsequent credit collapse in 2008-2009. So it wasn't one day in the making or a few years in the making, it was 20 years in the making. So, is the, so Eden, is the fundamental problem here, I mean, are we really just talking... Uh... I mean, you and I have joked about uh, over the years, Adam Smith, and, you know, we've talked about the invisible hand and, you know, all these sort of almost financial cliches, I suppose, in a way. I mean, is the fundamental problem uh, Gordon Gecko's problem, which was greed? Um, greed is a natural part of the market in the sense that the market will oscillate between greed and fear. It, ha it always has. For hundreds of years, it always has. The problem really arises when there's an aspect called moral suasion. And moral suasion arises when you behave in such a way that you feel your risk is being covered by someone else. And that, more than anything else, is really, you can lay that blame at the door of the Federal Reserve. It's what they did was they bailed out the banks. The banks made reckless loans, they, they made extraordinary risks, and they benefited immensely from the bailout. So when uh, the crisis arose, uh, the Federal Reserve bailed out the equity holders and the bondholders in the banks. So, you know, we've seen coming out of this crisis a gap between uh, the 1% and the 99% actually widen. Uh, it should have actually contracted hmm. because the equity holders should have been allowed to fail, the bondholders should have been allowed to fail, but, but the deposits in these banks protected. They did the exact opposite. They protected the equity holders, they protected the bondholders, and the executives became wealthier than they had ever dreamed of coming out of this crisis. So, so for you, uh, justice would have, in a sense, financial fiscal justice would have been the market self-correcting, as you say. Yes. And most of these folks either wound up in jail or they lost their fortunes. And that would, be, would that be self-correction in a sense? That's absolutely right. One of the attributes of a free market is failure. Hmm, failure is necessary because failure impacts your decision-making going forward. Right. If you extricate failure from the equation, your behavior changes. And that's what happens. So there's a part of me that, I mean, we, we've joked about this, the whole notion of markets being self-corrective. To me, there's an there's a anthropomorphism there. There's a, a humanity to the market that I don't believe exists. Yep. And yet... You know, you would. I think you would in a debate, if we were in a debate together, and you would stand your ground on that and say, well, hang on a second here. We're talking about a community of people. It's not about this inanimate object called the market, but it's, is that, is that right? Is that fair? Well, it's twofold. There are people involved, and these are individuals like you and I, and they have families, and they're decent people. Uh, the market in itself is entirely different. The market is agnostic. The market goes where it's treated best. So if the market is treated badly, either with higher taxes or higher interest rates, it will allocate capital elsewhere. And that's how it allocates. So it's really indifferent in terms of good or bad or right. anything like that. Right. It just flows like a river flows downhill. Yeah. Capital flows where it's treated best. You you speak like it though about it though like there's an intentionality to it. 
that that I find quite remarkable and frankly a little troubling. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's not that it's intentional because it doesn't know, it doesn't have a grand plan or it, it's not uh, visionary uh, to see where it's going. It's really, it's, it's really more a function of, okay, take something as simple as real rates. Uh, real rates. <laughs> Which is so funny because I have no idea what a real okay. rate is. Real rate is the actual interest rate when you subtract inflation from it. Okay. I'm already confused. Okay. Yeah. So, okay, you've got interest rates of 5% yeah. and inflation of 2%. You've got a real rate of 5 minus 2 equals 3. 3%. Okay. Right? Okay. So, that's the real interest rate after, after money devalues, okay. which is inflation. So, if you have a real interest rate like you did through, during the 80s and 90s, then earnings assets and yielding assets outperform. So stocks and bonds outperformed in the 80s and 90s. When the Federal Reserve started to ease interest rates about a decade ago, real interest rates fell to negative. That benefits non-yielding assets, right? So commodities, stuff like that. So we've seen crude oil go from $10 uh, in late 1990s to 150 at the high. We saw gold go from 250 in 2001 to a size 1900. We saw steel prices soar. We saw other commodities soar. That's what happens when real interest rates fall. Now, these commodities or assets don't know mm -hmm. that they're going to go that way. Mm -hmm. It's just that this hurdle rate, this threshold that makes it, that changes the incentive to invest in one asset or the other is completely market driven. So, um, would you call it almost, uh, in a way, crowd behavior? It's crowd behavior comes in afterward. Hmm. When a trend has persisted for a long period of time, that's when crowd behavior comes in. But isn't the market's self-directed notion based on some sort of crowd... Uh, that, you know, that, yeah, I don't uh, even know what word I'm looking for no. here. But some, I was going to go with intention, but you've already sort of said it's not intentional in that sense. But crowd behavior, I guess. Crowd, crowd behavior. The market, most of the time in a trend is, is rational. It ebbs and flows. It rallies, it self-corrects mm -hmm. all, across all asset classes. But there comes a point when policies come into place. Interest rates are kept too low. Uh, credit is made too available. Mm -hmm. Where the, the self-correcting nature of the market transitions, there is a, um, uh, what's that term? Uh, where you cross a threshold um, where the behavior changes. Red line, like red line in a way? Um, sort of. Yeah. And so that's when corrective behavior turns into hurting behavior. Hurting so, as an H-E-R-D? Yes, uh, H-E-R-D-I-N-G. Uh -huh, so that's where to. you become, it starts to act like a crowd. Because then what happens is the behavior changes. So when the market's self-correcting, everyone's rational. Okay, you, um, you buy uh, corn at the grocery store. When the price doubles... You don't buy the same quantity of corn. You actually buy less of that corn because mm -hmm. you've got the constant dollar or crude or your gasoline prices go yep. up. Yep. You cut back on the miles you drive right. because you've got a budget to stay. That's rational behavior. Right. What happens in asset classes like equities or bonds or, or commodities is there comes a point when the trend persists, something flips and it becomes a hurting behavior. So right. now... Instead of being rational in your decision making, you are not 
turned away by high, higher rising prices, you actually become more emboldened. So I'm wondering, and, and we can uh, d- do away with this uh, line of thought in a second, but would I be a part of the herd behavior in the sense that I know, I know enough to be dangerous when it comes to economics, when it comes to fund management and so on? So I see some sort of trend occurring out there. I see what the market is doing. And when I say market, it comes with footnotes and italics. Sure. And I go, wow, look at all these people making money. I jump on the bandwagon. I'm the one who kind of screws it up. I'm the guy who 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 starts uh, uh, um, redlining, I suppose. Yeah. You know, if we can use the phrase I used earlier. You actually said it very eloquently because that's precisely what happens at the at the, when you transition to a herding stage. It's usually the least informed right. that that commit to the trend, and, right. I, and I, don't, I don't mean that in a derogatory yeah, sense. No, I, because I, 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 because I, yeah. you know these are these are people that are rational in every aspect of their of their behavior, but then they tra- they transition to something else. So in you a know, sense, think, you remember if, the cabbage patch phenomenon, of course, right? Yeah, when yeah. when rational people would fly across London to get the last cabbage patch and so on, yeah. it becomes a self feeding frenzy. Yeah, and we've yeah. seen that before. You know, yeah. we've seen yeah. and, and all sorts of things, and. Um, and that's a classic case in point. Rational people commit to a trend because they hear stories about other people making money easily, yeah, and yeah. it becomes compelling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the unfortunate nature of markets, and it always ends that way. The whole self-feeding frenzy comment you just made uh, reminds me of a, a, a quote by Emil Fackenheim, who said that um, uh, under capitalism, people devour people, and under communism, it's the other way around. <laughs> Every time it comes up, or I mean, I don't see it very often, but it's awesome. It's just, there's something about it that just, you know, shoots us all down. It, I mean, it kind of levels the playing field. Human nature is human nature. Yeah. It never changes. Yeah. No, it doesn't seem to. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to think it does. Yeah. I mean, working in developments and working in, in those kinds of issues. No, you'd human like human nature in terms of crowding behavior. Oh, I see. Yeah, okay, yeah. fair enough. Yeah, yeah good, good. Yeah, not, not on an individual level. Yeah, it, right. That's definitely So different. you still believe in change? Oh, absolutely. I believe yeah, in change. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so why, uh, how the heck, pray tell, did you get involved with Kierkegaard? Well, uh, while I was taking molecular genetics at U of T, um, I did, uh, I did minor in philosophy and I was taking a moral philosophy class. And part of that, uh, one of the assignments was to really critique his premise that truth is subjectivity. Uh, so I, I went at it with fervor to disprove truth is subjectivity. And the more I delved into it, the more I became spellbound by it. So was this the supposed scientist and rationalist in you saying, I just can't buy this guy? <laughs> yeah, you know, that's actually a pretty good way of saying it. Because there was an empiricist uh, buried deep inside of me hmm. that that's led me to take moral philosophy. Because you, would, you basically assumed that there was a definite black and white between good and bad, right and wrong. And Kierkegaard threw a monkey wrench into that. Right. And it was so extraordinary that I picked up the Brettel anthology, which I think is 500 odd pages. And I read through that in a couple of days. Hmm. And I knew there was no looking back at that point. So this was a secondary source, somebody commenting about Kierkegaard and so on. What was the first uh, uh, first of Kierkegaard's writings that you read? Um, it would have to be Fear and Trembling. Yeah, yeah it seems to be. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And again, I, I, it's exceptional because one of the truly revolutionary things that he said in, in Fear and Trembling is 
who is closer to the truth. Uh, the pagan who passionately sacrifices uh, while in the nature of untruth um, to a cause he strongly believes in versus a self-righteous religious person who unctuously believes that they are in possession of the truth and no one else and is is scoffing at the pagan. Right. And he asked this very simple question, who is closer to the truth? And it's really fundamental um, in an existential quest to define values that you can live and die by. So I tell my students all the time that uh, it's rarely either or. That's right. And I mean, it's a title by Kierkegaard for those who, who've read him, yeah. for those who know. Is that kind of what he meant? That it's not, it's not about black and white. It's not about objectivity. It's, it's, and maybe you can, um, you can tease out the whole notion of truth as subjectivity as well, because I know that's often misunderstood. Yes. You know, this idea that truth is subjective. Well, what do you mean truth is subjective? And um, um, I, I, I think too often we polarize. Too often we tend towards it's black, it's white, it's up, it's down, it's positive, it's negative. And I think we miss all the nuances. We miss the subtleties of of what this all really is. Yes. Um, and we lose out on relationships and we lose out on, on, uh, uh, on an understanding. And I've made the distinction before that it's not about comprehension, it's about apprehension. Does that make sense? Yep, absolutely. I think that the aspect of Kierkegaard that really appealed to me at the beginning was that um, objective truths are in themselves approximations. We, we typically sort of de default accepting them as absolutes, mm -hmm. but they are themselves uh, approximations, and as such, we are spectators to those truths. Um, I can't know everything cognitively, so how do I know when I know enough or that I know the correct things? And, and analytical methods uh, that uh, we use in science really can't apply to an individual in trying to figure out him, himself. And so I think the, the quest for some sort of authentic truth is really at the basis of what Kierkegaard was trying to, uh, to separate a world that was very modernist, very industrializing, and had fall in love with its ability to move forward in, in society. And yet, we, he was born into a system, a religious structure, where um, certain groups were confident in their, in their possession of truth. Mm -hmm. And yet, he went about actually disarming that entire structure uh, to, to explain that truth is an, is an existential quest. So it's not what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me. It, it, that's not what it's reduced to, is it? Or is it, is it more than that? No, I think, it, I think it really it is. In searching for truth, we, we want, it's not so much the what of the truth. It's not the, the, the merit of the truth that can be appraised by someone else and judged by someone else. It's really the why of what we're doing mm -hmm. that matters more. Well, and this is ex existentialism, it seems to me. This is freedom, this is choice, this is responsibility. Yeah. Uh, I mean, ultimately, isn't that... And, and this is the irony of the question, I think, of mine earlier about intentionality in the market. 
Um, I mean, Kierkegaard would say it's all about intentionality, wouldn't he? Yep, it's about intentionality, but even, even in discussing freedom and truth, we can have freedom of speech, we can have freedom from shackles of a cell wall, but, you know, you take someone like Mandela or Solzhenitsyn or Bonhoeffer, were they unfree men? They were perhaps the most free of men, even though, sh even though they were shackled in prison. You contrast that with a tyrant who hmm. mm -hmm. himself has absolute power over everyone and yet is paranoid about holding on to his power. Right, right. And so who is really free here? And so I think the, the nature of freedom is not bounded by political systems, uh, systems of justice. In the end, freedom is something truly inward something that you make of examining what your possibility can be. So, so um, uh, Kierkegaard would have uh, said that, that uh, you don't catch the truth, you don't reach out and grasp it, but it kind of grasps you. Uh, can, you ex can you talk a bit about that, how that's played out in your own life? Sure, and, and that is my favorite Kierkegaard quote. Um, it's actually the, the quote that I use on my, on my Twitter. As, as, my, as my description. What's your, what's your Twitter handle, by the way? Uh, I think it's at Eden Rahim. At Eden Rahim. That's E-D-E-N-R-A-H-I-M. That's right. Yeah. How, how often did you tweet, Eden? Um, probably once a day. Yeah, okay. But it's, it's an eclectic range of philosophy, film, finance. Oh, okay. So it's kind of a fun thing as well for yeah. you. It's not just about business. No, no, yeah. no. Not yeah. at all. I, yeah. In fact, I, I, I really try to keep the business at a minimum. Oh, okay. It's yeah. really more it's about good. film and philosophy and good. thoughts and a bit and, of sport. And I, by the way, I want to get back to film. Uh, we had talked earlier before the recording started about Children of Men, so I want to come back to that uh, as well. But sure. So talk to me about uh, how truth catches you. Yeah. I, we, how it, it comes from perspective. We, as it stands right now, we all look at truth as something that we agree about. We look at it out there. We select it, yes, this is, I like that truth, or I, someone has told me that this is true. And so we choose truths and values from a, from a buffet. Right, as if it sits on a library shelf. Exactly, as if it okay. sits on a library shelf, yep. Yep. or it's been um, absolutely taught to us, and we accept it, and, we, and we're able to act in such a way, because these are, they're given truths, we act with a clear conscience. So we don't, we don't examine our actions specifically in relation to every act. So instead, we end up saying, well, because this is true, and I accept this to be true, because it's been taught to me, I've been told it, a, a, someone much smarter than me has mm -hmm, explained mm -hmm. it to me, we just accept it. So it really, we're, we're, we're looking at truth objectively. And what the impact of that is, is that we can now do things with a clear conscience because it's been sanctioned, it's been legitimized. Now, if you extrapolate that out to the negative scenario, is that we look around the world and and, and history of mankind and so many atrocities have been committed by people with supposedly good intentions mm -hmm. or people appealing to a transcendent faith or people who believe that truth is on their side and they're able to commit things uh, atrocities and go to sleep with a good a clear well, conscience. Well, Mein, mein Kampf, Hitler yeah. 
actually says, I mean, the, I, I don't know what the direct quote is. I can't recall it right now. Yeah. Uh, the mere fact that I've read the book is troubling on certain yes. levels. But he talks about being called by God yeah. on some level. And this is this is a part of the plan, this yes. final solution. I mean, the hubris and the ego and the... Completely. It's just, you, you, you watch a documentary about it. You read about these things. Joseph Coney. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's so many, Pol Pot, there's so many yeah. others. And you just say... Re- how do you even get there? That's right. You know, it's just, it's astounding. Yeah. And, and, and not in a good way. And in each of these societies, you had a charismatic person that, um, that gave hope to people. Right. So they suspended their own existential decisions on the belief that this person understood better or more clearly or had a plan, right? Exploiting their, their desperate state and and that's you know and, and, and regrettably i think what kierkegaard is asking us to do is defer against that every decision you make should be someone that is reflected on inwardly and in that decision the 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 person that that impact is impacted by your decision is treated as a subject not an object hmm. in all of these top-down systems everyone is objectified so for a guy who it sounds to me like his philosophy was highly relational. I mean, I mean, I think Kierkegaard would say you can't know yourself unless you completely you, you are involved in a community of some yeah. kind that you know you're, you you know yourself to the degree to which you know your wife or your friends or your family around you are impacting you in some way shape or form. Yes. I mean, he really was a loner, wasn't he? Um, he I was remember. a loner in some sense and you know it, it it's a funny thing about about uh, about individuals is Maybe by being alone, he was able to reflect on this more clearly right. and articulate it more clearly, and we right. all stood, right. we all right. stood to benefit from it. Right. And um, yeah, but he was a loner, and uh, he ha- he definitely grew up in a very very austere, brooding household. Uh, but I think that despite that, the hope that he gave to every single individual in their ability to determine who they become in their possibilities and to overcome the despair that that is a natural result of the conflict of trying to create someone who you are not. Right. I think it's extraordinary. Right. Right. Yeah, it, you know, uh, not to get into too much quoting of earlier philosophers and so on, but um, I can't help but think of uh, uh, de Beauvoir's ethics, ethics of Ambiguity and how she talks about, you know, being thrown into the world not of her own making. Yes. And for me, that was a real pivotal moment in my, my uh, it was my master's degree and just uh, reading philosophy, this idea of we've been tossed into it and it had nothing to do with us. Absolutely. And it's kind of a holy shit moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's kind of a, wow, now what? Yeah. My parents lied to me. My school lied to me. My church lied to me. Uh, my fa- friends and family have lied to me. Now what? Yes. And how do I react to that? And so Kierkegaard is saying, hang on, if we, if we started from this truth of subjectivity uh, perspective and said it's about inwardness, it's yes. about reflection and so on, uh, things could be really different. Absolutely. Yeah. You you are now you're no longer at a disadvantage. Yeah. You are no longer uh, compromised. You are no longer a victim. Right. Right. So we're back to responsibility. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting, Eden. I mean, you know that I have young kids. I have a five and a seven-year-old, and my joke and, uh, is that I, I want to screw them up as little as possible. <laughs> which which is always my aim as a father. That's which right. Is just we, to as little damage as possible. I mean, we're all carrying a truckload of baggage, yes. right? I think we're talking about the, the make and the shape and, and the contents. Yes. I mean, the, re the reality is we've all got it. So how we're going to... So, but I'm being very intentional about trying to create this sense of freedom within them uh, an artistic and religious and relational uh, freedom and but the sense of choice and responsibility as well and that you know uh, and I and I hope we're, we're on the right path and I and I, I agree with you I mean I think I think if worldwide we had this sense instead of acquiescing towards something else yes that's supposedly higher up that's supposed and i uh, supposedly out there in some way shape or form yeah um uh it's uh, uh it's it's more about the here and now it's more about the 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 present moment and that's yeah anyway i'm uh, i'm i'm you know kind of babbling now i suppose no but no i know you no i understand what you're what you're saying and and it makes sense and you know what if you if you f take every decision as if I think Kant had said, if you take a decision and it be, you treat it as if it can become a universal law, right? So now you're constantly thinking in terms of how this impacts someone else, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Then you act authentically to that person's benefit, right? Right. He was talking about the categorical exactly, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, one one of the dilemmas that that Kierkegaard was expert at was explaining that when we um, when we are not sincere, or we try to avoid that uh, that uh, inwardness, a genuine, authentic, genuine inwardness, that it leads us to despair because right. we we become a conflicted individual. Right, right. And uh, you know, at some point, he says, you know, you you think about a beautiful woman, how she's dealing with aging. You think about a wealthy man who's lost his wealth. Um, you think about, you know, in the modern times, you think about an intellectual who wants to make a name for himself so that he'll be immortal and it's not coming to fruition. You think about an extrovert who no longer has an audience right. uh, to communicate. All these things create a sense of despair because you're trying to create um, an inward person in an, in an outward form. And we're not right. being sincere right. with ourselves. Right. And that's what de Beauvoir's point is almost identical in the sense that she said, so we realize we've been thrown into this world, not yeah. of our own, own making. We have this holy smokes moment and we say, now what? Yes. And then we create this sort of faux human being. Yes. Yes. In order to run from what she calls our freedom. Yeah. And I mean, essentially, that's the main tenet of, of existentialism really, isn't Completely. it? Completely. I mean, so you you shared a few quotes with me uh, and and uh, for today's talk and one of them I just I think is absolutely beautiful quote Eric from quote the quest for certainty blocks the search for meaning uncertainty is a very condition to impel man to unfold his powers close quote I mean it's a it's beautiful yeah. for a whole lot of reasons poetic yes. and just literary uh, can you unpack that a little bit I mean aren't we all looking for certainty of one kind or another yeah I think our natural state is always yearning for certainty and that leads us into making decisions that have far-reaching consequences. Right. Um, now, this is where the nature of markets has something to teach us because uncertainty is the backbone of markets. All we do in markets is try to find certainty amidst a sea of uncertainty.
we find, we try and invent systems of analysis, um, all sorts of means, securities to protect against uncertainty. It drives the entire industry of finance. But similarly, on an individual level, our quest for certainty is we're looking for financial certainty, we're yep. looking for, for religious certainty, we're looking for certainty in, in, in that we're loved by someone. Yep. Uh, we found a mate that, that loves us. Um, so we're, we're looking for that. And it's, it's a perilous road because that's the road where you make decisions that last a lifetime. And you can make inauthentic decisions where, because the quest for certainty takes precedence. And it's, 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 it's a very, it's a very tight balance, <coughs> excuse me, that is at the heart of existentialism to find that balance in the quest for certainty. So certainty is really a myth. At brief periods in our life, we may have certainty about something because you created an edifice mm -hmm. or a structure that mm -hmm. makes us feel safe within that period. But then we know what happens in life. Fate happens. I'm going to go back to the Beauvoir. That's exactly what children realize at some yeah. point. I think her direct quote in the opening of chapter two of the book, and boy, am I now looking like a nerd, but um, <laughs> uh, man's unhappiness is due to his first having been a child. Yes. And so at some point in our life, whether it's 10, 11, 12, 13, we go again, we have that holy smokes moment. Yes. And go, wow, we've been lied to. Yes. And I didn't have anything to do with this. Yes. And again, now what the heck am I going to do with it? Yep. And, and she argues, as do most of the existentialists, we all run from that. Yep. And, and, and we end up with Pol Pot and we end up with, uh, I mean, a crazy uh, financial markets and yep. extreme poverty. I mean, I mean you can, it's just, it's, it's really quite incredible, I mean, to, to see how uh, um, this notion of relationship and authenticity seems to be kind of connected to everything Absolutely. in a way. And that's a foundation. I mean, what, everything else is governed by humans acting. Yeah. So I think if you, you take it from the single individual outward, yeah. right? Single indi individuals behave a certain way. Collectively, that gets manifested outward. Sure. In the markets that they participate in, that gets manifested as well. And so I think that's a connectedness right that's right. in here and that's why often, which is so ironic because isn't that what we're all trying to get to in some way shape or form i mean it's certainly what i believe yeah. is this idea of connectedness yes is this sense of loss that we have it's this sense of despair that we actually you know kind of don't recognize yes and we're filling it in one way shape or uh, form uh, with so many different things you know kind of that god-shaped hole that yes. pascal talks about yeah yeah um um, so, so we're getting close to the end of our time, uh, but tell me about Children of Men. So we both love film. Uh, we've seen many together. We've certainly spent many hours talking about great films. Would you, would you say it's in the top 10 for you? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love Children of Men because uh, um, for many, you know, it's not really the reasons that a lot of other people like it. I realize it's a dystopian view of, of well, it's humanity. Kind of, it's pretty dark. It is. It is very dark yeah. and it gets darker. Um, uh, ultimately concluding with some hope. But more than anything else, I like character-driven film. And in the case of Children of Man, here you have this very unassuming um, who turns out to be a hero and never really recognizes that. But this unassuming character played by Clive Owen, who's actually withdrawing from life, day by day withdrawing from life, 
is extremely cynical, uh, it's quite hopeless, and is thrust in circumstantially and un 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 unwittingly into making small decisions that he has no grand plan of. He doesn't see where it's leading. He doesn't even see it as meritorious. But small little decisions, existential decisions made one after the other, nothing noble, nothing heroic about them, but they start to add up into something. And then he sees his life start to form, but again, it's an unfinished work, as all, our, all lives are. Mm -hmm. It's always unfinished. It's really always a work in progress. And so, so you've got this grand theme that's unfolding in the plot of the film, but the attraction to me really was the development of, of that character uh, as he went through, as he made decisions, small decisions, some bad decisions, some good decisions. Well, <laughs> bad and good as measured by the ultimate outcome. Um, but decisions are decisions. Mm -hmm. We don't mm -hmm. know whether they're mm -hmm. bad or they're good. Um, it's what you make of it, I guess, really what, what matters. And so it's really <laughs> quite a favorite of mine, in addition to the great soundtrack. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's true. Yeah, it, it really, I mean, it, cinematography, the whole thing, I mean, it's just really quite a gritty, gritty little piece. Yeah, I think I mean, you'd actually pointed out there was a scene in there that lasted seven or eight minutes that was filmed, out, and it's a very difficult scene to film. Right, there's a, there is a battle scene where it's, it's all one take, and I think at one point uh, uh, blood actually splashes up onto the lens of the camera, and the director uh, chose to keep going. And I just, uh, I don't know, there's, there's this uh, dark, uh, edgy kind of realism to that yes. that you don't often see in, in movies. And uh, on some level, I, I've, I, don't, I was going to say I've got to respect that, but I just really admire it, and it makes the experience so much more enjoyable for me. And one of the other beauty, beautiful things about that scene is that you have these polarized groups. You've got a uh, totalitarian regime who themselves think they're acting rationally and doing the right thing, and then you've got a subversive group that's fighting for uh, the remnants of humanity. But at that moment when the baby is going through, uh, they both subside. Right. Right. There, there is, there's a higher yeah. good that they all yeah. think. Right. So for a brief moment, yeah, they all get it. That's absolutely right. Yeah, they all get it for yeah. a brief moment, yeah. and then, and that's just, I guess that's the cynical realism of the film that just bears down on it in the yeah. sense that we're kind of screwed. Yeah. Uh, if we don't get it. Yep. Um, you know what's so ironic about Children of Men is that that so many people I think would see it as a dark kind of cynical piece that's very dystopic and 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 unrelenting yeah. in its dismissal of humanity, and yet at the same point, I mean, I think it's entirely hopeful. Absolutely. And um, kind of cliche at the end, I suppose, uh, but uh, in a way, but but it really is about how to become more human. Yeah. Um. So I would love for you to talk a little. You used to work for a major bank in Canada, and I've often smiled to myself about a story that you told me uh, about a decision that you had to make that ended up you was turned out to be an amazing decision, and you made millions of dollars on this one decision, and yet you talk about anxiety and despair and 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 uh, can you tell us a little bit about that story and how it uh shaped who you are from um, from a from maybe from an existential sense in a way and i'll let you tip uh the story was that when i uh 
I puked into the basket. That's when you puked into the basket. Okay. I was hoping you were going to say that. Yeah, exactly. This is a. This so you is, wanted me to say it. I wanted you to you? say it. I was going to say it, but I thought, you know what? I'm going to. I'm going to let Eden lead on this one. Good. Great. It's a, it's a Someone record as having said that. That's right. Yeah, it's a fantastic story for so many reasons because I think it it humanizes what you do. I think it. I mean, I have trouble. I don't get what you do in a way. I. I think I'd rather have bamboo shoots uh, shoved up my fingernails. You know, I've felt that many a time. That's right. Then do what you do. And and but you know what? There's a part of me that I go, wow. I'm just glad there are people out there that like this, because it seems to sort of hold something together. And I don't have time for that. You know. So anyway. So thanks. <laughs> this was the fall of 1998. The uh, long-term capital had collapsed. The Russian ruble had collapsed, and default and Russia defaulted. Um, markets had dropped about thirty odd percent in three months. And three months earlier, at the top, I had become a portfolio manager for a growth fund. And the first thing I was I was bearish. So the first thing I did was liquidate a huge uh, volume of stocks in the portfolio to raise my cash level. So I was up to about twenty percent cash, which in the mutual fund world is an enormous amount of cash. Uh, the market collapsed, and uh, around uh, early mid October, I um, I started to reverse my position by buying futures contracts to use up the cash. So I was turning bullish, even though there was blood in the streets. It was very bleak. Um, everything was crumbling around me. Um, I turned around. I went long uh, two hundred eighty-seven TSX thirty-five futures. And correct me up when I when I, mean, I you you lost me about uh, forty five seconds ago. <laughs> but anyway, about that. So I had taken as much pain as I could take, and just as uh, I think I heard a saying, it turns black just before dawn, right, or it turns right. uh, just before it uh, it's darkest before the dawn. It's darkest yep. before the dawn, yep. and um, when I couldn't take any more, I I got. The worst news imaginable. Uh, a trader phoned me up and said he had 300 futures to go and there was no bid. So I, at the time, it looked like it was an, in just a monumental bad bet on my part. I couldn't take it anymore. I literally uh, puked into the waste paper basket. Just from the, the tension, the just stress, from the tension, uh, sick into the, the core. The what if? I was a young, I was a young portfolio manager at the time. And uh, I was just sick to the core, and that was the bottom. The market literally bottomed about five minutes later, and was up thirty-five percent in the next few months. And I uh, turned what was an absolutely horrific trade, sickening to the core, turned out to be one of my best trades of my life. So, and you made millions, didn't you, for the for the fund? For the, yes, for the fund. Yeah, yes. you yourself personally yeah. didn't. I wish I did. But, so, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, a huge uh, upswing. A hu- ultimately positive yes uh, a way forward all those things yeah what do you take like what do you take from that i mean is it is it that you know uh, we don't need to invoke kierkegaard necessarily but is it about you know taking the leap is it about making that decision is it about committing what 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 kind of lesson do you learn from something like that that's actually very difficult <laughs> keep to keep, assess. An, keep an air sick bag yes. handy yes i think that more than anything else <laughs> I mean, a it's a great story for yeah. so many reasons, and I think there are lessons to be learned there. But but I'm I'm just not a hundred percent sure what they are yet. Yeah, and you know, it's I've, I've reflected on it a lot. I've had lots of trades in my life, and 
and I have a penchant for, for standing, marching against the crowd that we yes. talked about yep, yep, at the yep. beginning and positioning against the crowd. And invariably, I'm almost early, so I, I end up taking a fair amount of pain standing against the crowd at, at inflection points. And um, my behavior hasn't changed much since in my career. Um, as, you know, as we talked about over the years, I was super bearish on U.S. real estate, you know, a year and a half too early. And I paid dearly for that, you know, being short U.S. real estate stocks too early. But they ultimately, many of these stocks went to zero. And that was a case in point. So uh, the only lesson is that um, you understand when something has gone too far, but you don't know how far it can hmm. go against you hmm. first. How about, okay, so let me go, go a little cliche, Kierkegaardian and cliche. Yeah. Y you really don't get it until you look back, right? That's right. So, so you can reflect now a little bit more on that, and yet maybe not. There's not quite enough time between 1998 and now that's passed for you to really make sense of that. Maybe in ten more years we'll have another conversation, and you'll go, you know what, David? Here, here's why. Well, you, you know why the good they're good old days. The, right. only reason, the only reason why they're good old days it's because it turned out you made it through. Right. And you can look back at the time that you're going through it. They weren't good days. So I'm going to, I'm going to close this off with another quote you shared with me. George Soros. Yes. Uh, philanthropist. Um, right? Uh, philanthropist and uh, probably the greatest hedge fund manager ever. So, the, so there you go. So somebody, so, so, so almost a contradiction in a way, in a way. Uh, and somebody who certainly appeals to my heart because, you know, he's obviously been a part, not just of giving away a lot of money, yeah. but also a catalyst for... But I would say a significant amount of change yeah, globally. And absolutely. And yeah. he uses money for that. And uh, yeah. Yeah. he was strongly influenced by Karl Popper. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. From a philosophical point yeah. of view. So he says, uh, markets, quote, markets are constantly in a state of uncertainty and flux and money is made by discounting the obvious and betting on the unexpected, close quote. Pretty interesting coming from a guy who's now... I think trying to eradicate eradicate extreme poverty, yes. uh, trying to give back to this notion of the greater good. I mean, you know, it's 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 wonderful, and I think infuriating all at the same time. <laughs> Deliciously infuriating. Yeah, I think you have to accept that uh, with anyone that crosses over, hmm. because to operate in the in the markets requires a certain discipline. Right. requires a certain acceptance of what the rules of the game right. are. Right. And they aren't necessarily the same rules that apply elsewhere. Right. And to his credit, he has decided that philanthropy is an important use of the funds that he was able to, able to make in a market. I'm not going to say it's Robin Hood, but I'm just saying it's just, um, it's just a good use of transferring that money to a greater good. And few people have been able to amass the wealth he has, uh, understanding financial markets. And he is clever enough to understand that the rules of life or the rules of human nature elsewhere aren't precisely the same right. as would be required right. here. Right, right. I guess the cynics would say, easy for him to say after making so much money. Sure. The same with Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. It isn't a marvelous what they're doing, but yeah, you know, I'll, I'll do that too once I'm a billionaire. Yeah. You know what? The one thing we learn is uh, it's always easy uh, uh, to be a critic and to say, uh, if I were in his shoes, I would have done this. I would have done that. And it turns out that, again, the Kierkegaardian response to that is, let's see you do what you can with what you have 
right now, today. You, the single individual. Once you've trained yourself to perhaps give until it hurts, or give to such a point where you're not contented of having given enough, but are willing to do more, when you can do that with your life now, then we'll see what you can do when you've amassed a fortune. Mm. Nice. So you can do what you can with what you have today. What a great way to end an awesome uh, conversation and interview. Thank, thank you uh, for you know uh, chatting and for sharing some of your insights and the puke story. <laughs> that was big for me. It was a lot of fun, David. I'm sure we'll we'll talk we'll talk about it again. Thanks, Eden. Great, thank you. Do you want, Eden? Just before we go, uh, you want to talk about? Uh, I've forgotten the name of your company. Oh, it's uh, it's Horizons Exchange Traded Funds. I manage uh, thirteen covered call ETFs, um, four commodity, and uh, that's uh, thirteen minus four. That's nine equity ETFs in Australia and in Canada, and we're launching into the U.S. in a few months. And the website is uh, HorizonsETFs.com. Thanks for joining us today on Face to Face. My pleasure.